Hello, I'm Stephanie Webster. I'm a nutritional therapist on Harley Street, London, specialising in gut health, hormone optimization, and fat loss. And today on the Urban Health Podcast, we have the pleasure of having Dr. Wendy Denning on the show. Dr. Denning is a highly respected GP with over 25 years experience, and she is a passionate advocate for the integration of traditional and complementary medicine. For three years in a row now, she has been named in Tatler's top 150 private doctors, and she's well known for co-presenting the very successful TV series, The Diet Doctors Inside and Out. She's also served for two years on the GP steering group for the Prince of Wales Foundation for Integrated Health, and is currently serving on the committee for an integrated approach to gynecology in this country. Great! So, Wendy, thank you so much for coming onto the show. Well, thanks for inviting me, especially to talk about some of my favourite subjects, so thank you. Yes, so I've always liked your opinion about bioidentical hormones, about integrating Western and complementary medicine. That's very much my ethos. I believe that Western medicine has a lot to offer, but also it's not the only route to someone's treatment path. So that's the reason why I was very keen to interview you today. Thank you. So, tell us about how you became a GP, and particularly how you became involved in traditional and complementary medicine. Well, I'm probably one of those few people who went into medical school interested in the, in the integration of the two things. I, I went in and I, because I'd been brought up in my own home with a father that had a back problem and had called in the osteopath, but at the same time had to have spinal surgery at one point. So we knew that they both worked together his, and that was very clear. My mother was, on the other hand, very interested in nutrition. Before sort of organic was even on the market, you used to buy the equivalent of what we can now call organic in health food stores. She would go and buy all the food in health food stores. If I got sick, I was more likely to get a homeopathic remedy than I was to get um, antibiotics. But there were moments where I did have to have a course of antibiotics. I still remember having antibiotics for an ear infection when I was five. But So I've, I was brought up with that. Um, relating back to my family, there's always been a strong interest in nutrition because my grandmother was a juvenile diabetic. Um, and so in nutrition has always been very important in our household. Um, and so I took that interest into medical school. I, in fact, spent the first year in medical school um, helping people to under, getting speakers to come and talk about some of these subjects, um, running a, a society that put on talks on these subjects and funnily enough I went to a reunion with my medical school class a couple of years ago and they said well you're still doing the same things that you were talking about when we were in medical school so that was kind of nice I like that yeah sorry go on my father was a businessman and his view was very much that um, if you were going to do complementary medicine alongside traditional medicine, you needed a very good training in traditional medicine. And so I pursued very much the traditional path to get that training. Very glad now I did because I do feel very competent in traditional medicine, which means I know when what traditional medicine has to offer. And it actually makes it easier for me to branch out to something else because I know what the end result of the traditional pathway might look like. Of course, that's always changing. Have to stay up to date with that. 
but it's still a, a, a strong uh, feeling to know what might be on offer and then to branch out to something else. Yes, and also it's about helping us understand our patients better. If they don't feel well, they go to a doctor who has been trained in traditional methods and they would follow a set of protocols that are tried, tested, that we have evidence on. But that doesn't mean that we can't be open-minded to other methods. Should they be more effective or should they be more appropriate for the patient's values or beliefs or, or comfort zone? Absolutely. And, and often it's, it's a combination of the two, I find. That mm-hmm. often, very often, you get the best results with, but but sometimes it's and that depends on how chronic the situation is. Acute things tend to respond well to conventional medicine. Chronic things, often not as well. If you're just purely relying on conventional medicine, because there are many other things that you need to do to support the body. I couldn't agree more. And when it comes to homeopathy that you just mentioned there, that's been. Some people believe in it, some people don't. What's your opinion on that? Well, I think, I mean, I was responding to using homeopathy uh, as a child. I think homeopathy actually works quite well for children. It doesn't always work as well for adults um, because actually what you're doing in homeopathy is giving a signal to the body. And what you're trying to do is to make that signal a a little bit louder than the signal they've already got in their body to get the body to react and to start a sort of healing process. The problem with adults is often we can be quite toxic and therefore our body can't listen to quite what I consider homeopathy to be quite a subtle signal. Yes, I would say homeopathy is subtle. A lot of complementary therapies are subtle, which is why they need to be repeated often and long term. Whereas Western medicine is very aggressive and very, I don't want to say caustic, but they, they just they give a very immediate response. Sometimes, sometimes that you don't respond at all. In some mental health situations, uh, a lot of uh, treatment-resistant uh, medication, uh, treatments for depression have resulted in complementary therapies being actually more effective. I just think it's nice to have a selection of options. Agreed. So, Absolutely agree on that. Yep. How, however, when it comes agree. to diagnosis, I probably, my personal philosophy, and this is all subjective in my opinion, when it comes to diagnosis, I do quite like Western medicine for that. Um, and then I do like a selection of treatment options. What's your view? I, I, yeah, I couldn't agree more on that. And in fact, it's what I say to patients. Uh, I say, look, let's. I'm very up for getting a diagnosis early. I like the Western diagnostic methods, and I use a lot of them. And I think I'm very much of the view that if I have got a very bad headache and everything's been looked at before, I want to make sure I haven't got a brain tumor. I don't want to wait five months or six months to get an MRI. I want to know, have I got that problem or not? I was thinking about one of my patients who, you know, was told he wouldn't need, you know, he probably didn't have a problem, but he couldn't actually settle into anything until he'd had his MRI. So I'm very hot on getting early, early assessments of people and then ruling out things that aren't there, ruling in things that are there and looking at how we might optimize that patient's health. Yes. And speaking of optimization, you specialize in bioidentical hormones and it's about optimizing. So 
a, a male or female doesn't necessarily have to be deficient, but if they are suboptimal, that's something that you can really help with. So talk to us about your bioidentical hormone therapy, who it's for, what it does, a bit about that. Yep. Um, it's it, obviously the majority of patients that, that are looking at hormones are in the menopause because that is obviously when hormones start dropping in the body and when people start noticing what their hormones have been doing for them. So I'm going to, I'll talk about that to begin with. And then people say to me, well, are you in favor of um, hormone therapy? And my answer to that is always um, that it depends on the patient. But there are no doubt in my mind that a lot of patients do very well with um, bioidentical hormones. Um, and that is because of what we want people to do as they hit the menopause. We want to have optimal energy. We want to be able to work. We want to have um, a sharp brain. We want to have our bones protected. We want our heart protected. And so very often people are looking to get hormones. Um, and so what is this word bioidentical? It's, some people are you know, concerned with the word and they think somehow it's something natural. They're not natural hormones. They are identical to the hormones that our bodies produce. And I think that's an important one because, oh, it's all natural. No, it's not natural. It's just what our body is used to. So if you're going to replace something, why would you replace it with something that the body isn't used to? It was quite understandable in the olden days because we had... Um, the only things available were um, horses' hormones that were brought out from horses' urine and were made into products that women could then take in a pill. Since that was in the 1950s, we're well beyond that, and we now have hormones that are identical to the hormones that our bodies produce. So that's the first step, is making sure you get the hormones that the body produces. Then the next step to that is, A, how you give those hormones, and then the second step on that is, what what proportion of those hormones do you get? And one of the things I think that's not looked at uh, very well by conventional medicine is the fact that when women, for instance, go into the menopause, it's not just about estrogen and progesterone. It's also about what's happening to their adrenal glands. It's also about what's happening to their thyroid because all of our hormones work together. And so very often as one tips, another one might tip. And so you may, you may have a permanent problem with a thyroid or you may have a temporary problem, for instance, with a thyroid. But all of it needs to be looked at. Women who've been working and, and had very stressful lives who hit the menopause have been living off their adrenals. And suddenly, the thing that happens in the menopause is the body expects the adrenals to sort of take the place to some extent of of the ovaries. And if you've been flagging your adrenals for years, suddenly that body's ability to rely on the adrenals is not really there. And, and very often these are the women who have the most problems in menopause. So we do use bioidentical hormones for women before the menopause. And that would, uh, and, and then, then in that situation, it tends to be the use of um, progesterone. Um, and that is because 
particularly in the leading up to the menopause, the perimenopause, women are often having non-ovulatory cycles and they're often not producing progesterone in the second half of the cycle, which can lead on to quite a lot of, uh, of problems. So by supporting them with progesterone, A, we may reduce their risk of breast cancer, but we may also make them feel a whole lot better. And probably over my lifetime, I've had more calls from women who've been given progesterone in their perimenopausal years telling me how much better they feel than almost anybody else. That's so interesting because in my clinic, it's mainly male hormones that I look at. I use the test from uh, Nordic Laboratories called the Dutch Plus and you take six saliva swabs in a day and that looks at the cortisol, the adrenaline, the the testosterone, the human growth hormone, DHEA and I like to see the balance across that, what's happening to this stressed out executive over 40 because yes the, the menopause is spoken about but what about men and I find that low testosterone in stressed out executives is very, very common. And that can have a lot of side effects that are just negative. So um, I think that's not spoken about enough. Well, I think you're quite right. And and most people absolutely are talking about bioidentical hormones in women. But you're quite right. I see a lot of men in my practice and very often sent in by their wives, girlfriends, what, you know, mothers. Um, and... I have been shocked that how, 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 in theory, men should be not hitting a low testosterone level until they're about 60. But in practice, I see 40 and 50-year-olds with very low testosterone in my office. And you're quite right, I agree. It's a really under-discovered area and talked-about area. Yeah. And an important area because actually we know that men with low testosterone are more likely to have a cardiovascular event. We actually know that. So um, so it is an important area. Also, it, it affects sex drive. The same with women. Their hormones affect their sex drive and, and how able they are to um, to be intimate with their partners. And that can affect relationships, marriages and you know, who who wants to contribute to more divorce or more unhappiness if these things can be spoken about in the open and you just get help if you think you need it. So I, agree. I, I do agree. And I think we are living longer and we are, uh, you know, healthier longer in many ways. And hormones, in a way, we need those hormones to, to support that, really, in, in my view. Yeah, and it is about optimal health. And the World Health Organization used to define health as merely the absence of disease. But I know that you and I are a bit more ambitious than that. So I'm going to read to you, if I may, what the World Health Organization says today. They changed it recently. They said, it, they said it's that health is a state of complete physical, mental and social well-being and not merely the absence of disease or infirmity. The enjoyment of the highest attainable standard of health is one of the fundamental rights of every human being without distinction of race, religion, political belief, economic or social condition. So they've, they've done quite a lot of work on, on their definition. They have. They've moved on. <laughs> because it is, it is more optimal. So instead of just thinking of, oh, I'll go to the doctor when I'm unwell, what I like about your approach is you're proactive. Well, never mind not being unwell. How about what's the best you can be? What's the most athletic you can be? I sort of look at what's the most athletic you can be, what's the most vibrant, most energy. How can we 
not let the old come in to you and just be the youngest version of you all the time. So my question for you is, what does optimum health look like for you and your, your patients? I think it's a really good question because very often I will answer it, but um, very good, very often patients come in with a blood test and they're just scraping into the normal range and they go, well, I've been told my my results are normal. I said, yeah, but do you want to be normal or do you want to be optimal? And I think that is the point. None of us want to be just normal. We want to be optimal. Optimal is having, you know, it's, it's sleeping well, having good energy, having zest for life, being optimistic about the future, having, um, being out of pain, having the weight that suits our body, having good gut health, not, 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 not having bloating and constipation, diarrhea, gas, being nutrient dense. What that means is you're not got nutrient deficiencies, your hormones are balanced, you don't have inflammation in the body. And all of that's reflected in what we look like because you might have clear skin and eyes, shiny hair, and just look vibrant. Now, the, that's for someone who's got no health conditions. Obviously, that definition of optimal health with someone who's got a chronic disease might look different to that. But the concept is still the same. Yes, we know that you've got this ongoing issue going on here, but let's optimize everything else so that this becomes less of a problem. And very often, you can actually minimize that by optimizing everything else in the body. But also, you are a private GP, and you offer personalized advice. So those normal ranges that we see on a blood test or on any test whatsoever are normal ranges for a a subset of the population. They're not necessarily normal for you and they're certainly not necessarily optimal for you as a patient. So what is normal? What is normal? I I can't be normal if I try, firstly, but what, (laughs) what, what is normal for me is not necessarily normal for the general public and what is optimal for me is is also not optimal for the general public. So it's very much about an individual personalized approach. And I say that with caution because sometimes for our very keen, on the other hand, uh, patients who get either hypochondriac or they get perfectionist, I say you were not born to be perfect. You were born to be the best version of you. You were born to be awesome. And and, and that is a constant, it is in the constant striving and the constant pursuit of growth in this area that you feel vibrant. It is it's in progress, not perfection, that you find happiness when it comes to your health, particularly if there are knockbacks. And you can handle those better if you've got multiple points of progress in your plan. And that's what I like about your progressive approach and your personalized approach when you're handling clients. Thank you. Yes, I, I mean, to me, that makes it much more fun, you know, figuring out how to get them to be the best version of themselves and how to make them embody themselves, you know, in the best possible way. I think the, one of the most one of the most interesting experiences I had was years ago when I was at the American Holistic Medical Association conference and there was a woman there in a wheelchair who had a progressive neurological condition and she talked about how she came to love her body and how she came to use everything that she's got in her life optimally and it was really sobering because I was There I was, you know, a young woman in my 30s, everything going for me, didn't have any of that to struggle with. 
and to see her really living her life from a place of optimal health was really well it was inspiring it was truly inspiring yes it, it is inspiring and it's inspiring because you're entering the concept of dreams and you're saying what would the best version of you be like rather than that let's just put a plaster on so exactly giving permission the giving permission to our, our clients to dream what's the best version of me and the mind has to go there first if I'm helping somebody right. go from 130 kilos to something like 80 kilos in a year losing fat and not muscle and we're very hot on that then the psychology of that the, the ordeal chipping a little bit away every day so that you know that by this time next year, you're going to be practically half of your original body weight, but it's, it's body fat that we're focusing on. I mean, it's, it is very inspiring. It's very motivating. And it's very psychologically uh, exhilarating, really. And, and we only had mental health day uh, a month ago. People are talking about depression, suicide, anxiety. If you're on a positive trajectory, it puts all of that at bay because you believe in yourself. And really, if you've if you've become that overweight, and I know you don't get many many uh, overweight or obese uh, patients in your clinic, but um, it... I certainly get plenty that need to lose some weight. Though I do, and actually, yeah, I certainly get some that need to lose weight. In fact, many that need to lose weight. So, yeah, it's more of a if it's just a little bit of weight, it's more of a, the the found a comfort zone. So they're not pushing themselves to, to the edge. But if they've vastly uh -huh. gone, gone over, on some level, they have stopped making good health decisions because they don't think they care, they don't think they matter, yep. and they hate their yep. bodies. And really, uh, it's about loving the body and giving it what it needs and nothing that it doesn't need. And the, the, the fat will sort of gently melt away, obviously, with exercise and nutrition, of course. But it's the, the standpoint is very much, I love you, I want to look after you, rather than I hate you and I want to punish you. And, um, exactly. It's Couldn't just, agree more. It's just Couldn't agree. Nothing changes from punishment, really not. It might change temporarily, but long term, the changes come from love, really. Yeah, it's true. Well, that took a lot of, um, uh, having been born a Catholic and now not, <laughs> that took a lot of, lot of learning. That particular module was quite significant. You had to get over your guilt. <laughs> <laughs> the guilt that was loaded onto you. <laughs> yeah, that was fun. That was a fun decade. Guilt, shame, you know, <laughs> just Love understanding that. the human condition. It's quite funny, really. Anyway, um, right. The final thing I'd like to ask before I let you get on with your with your work is the Myers cocktails that you do. Before we started this call, we were talking about how iron is now long, no longer done intravenously and folic acid and b12 the, the folic acid b12 and iron i'm interested because i have so many anemic patients uh, now um however the myers cocktail let's start with that so the myers cocktail is a vitamin infusion let's talk about that well we do a number of vitamin infusions the myers is one of them it's one of my favorite probably because 20 years ago that's what got me interested in in iv vitamins um, and I got interested when I was living in Canada and I had been sick for a week with a bad flu and I didn't know how I was going to get home to London to see my family. And one of my friends said, go and see that doctor. He'll give you a shot and you'll be bouncing off the plane. And sure enough, I was. And I think that's the 
the, the Myers cocktail has the capacity to lift people's energy, lift their detox pathways, lift their adrenals, and help them with things like jet lag and sort of general fatigue. It contains magnesium, calcium, um, B6, B12, B-complex. The B-complex has some folic acid in it um, and and alongside that has vitamin C and it's been around for probably 40 to 50 years so it's the one that really puts sort of IV vitamins on the, on the on the table I would say and it still remains one of my favorite ones I if I'm traveling to the US for instance I always take a cocktail before I go when I come back I get one for jet lag but I have a lot of patients that come um, either on a regular basis to prop their levels up or I have them coming as and when they need it. Patients who are postnatal, people who've had been in hospital with an infection, people who've been having serious treatments for other conditions. We also run a number of other IVs, um, and that is for people who've got nutrient deficiencies, sort of amino acid deficiencies. We've got immune protocols that these people. We've got detox profiles that help people if they're going through detox pathways. That sort of includes things like glutathione and vitamin C. We also do IV vitamin C that people use alongside their cancer treatments. So we run a number of these things, and I think what I've seen it over the years is that some people have very good absorption from their guts. Many don't. Many are um, need almost to boost their energy in the body so they can get the best out of their food and get the best out of their nutrients that they've been given them by the nutritional practitioners. And so I feel that vitamin sort of on it sometimes takes the body up a notch so that it can then actually utilize everything that, that other people are trying to do with it. So that's how we use them and that's how we see them. Mm -hmm. So for those who are listening who need a little bit of understanding, when we eat food, it goes inside the stomach, uh, inside the digestive system, eventually it gets into the bloodstream. If it's not getting into the bloodstream, you're not absorbing the vitamins and the minerals from your food properly, which is where IV drips can become very useful because the vitamins and the minerals go straight into the bloodstream directly, bypassing the digestive system altogether. So for my patients who have ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease, or any other malabsorption issues in their gut, then this is why I like the Myers cocktail, but also all the other ones that you do. The Myers has the B and the C. These are water-soluble vitamins, so I wouldn't be concerned about overdosing if that's something that you need to consider, because um, you would just pee out the excess, as it were. And uh, Yes. Is that? Do Do you have anything to add? On I would that? totally agree with that. I mean, it was funny. Yeah, um, I was asked to give one to a patient over the weekend, and 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 someone said to me, "Well, aren't you just paying out um, expensive vitamins?" And I said, "Well, that's the case with any uh, you know drug that you take. That the body takes what it needs, and then it excretes the rest of it. Um, and so, no, you're not. Your the body has a chance to get a hold of those things because if you digestive system is very slow it may not be even you know it may not be able to absorb any of it 
and and, and whereas this and and particularly the Myers, it um, is what we call a hypertonic solution. So it not only is going straight into the bloodstream, but it's actually at a at a stronger concentration, which forces it into the cells. Isn't it amazing that the body just takes what it needs and disposes of the rest? Isn't it a fantastic machine? It's fantastic. And that's how, you know, all drugs work. That's what, how vitamins work. So people say, or, I mean, I think you made a very important point, though. None of the um, vitamins that we give are, um, are fat-soluble. You do have to be careful with fat-soluble vitamins. With water-soluble vitamins, exactly. The body takes it in and pees out the rest. It takes what it needs. But with the fat-soluble vitamins, you can cause a problem, and that's why we never give the fat-soluble vitamins because of that reason, because the body may not be able to excrete it in the way it needs to. So that would be, for example, A, D, E, K, and so on. So, so Yeah, I mean, I, I do say that. In fact, we do give vitamin D, D a shot, in fact, because most people are so deficient in vitamin D, and it's such an important vitamin stroke hormone. It's actually thought these days to be more of a hormone. But we do that very carefully. We don't put it straight into the bloodstream. We put it into the muscles. We do it after a blood test that shows that people are low and we follow it up with a blood test to make sure that we're not giving too much it has to be said i haven't seen someone who's high or or just they just make normal what vitamin d3 i have seen everyone's blood test is low particularly in the uk just well, you're absolutely right the only people i've seen with high ones have been taking ten thousand units daily for a very long period of time now they, interestingly enough i have been giving four thousand units daily to a patient in particular and his still was low so i had to supplement with bile salts and now yep. it's normal so oh, well done. It's yeah a, that's great it's about understanding what is stopping from this it's not about just taking d3 it's understanding in a fat uh, devoid diet, you won't absorb mm-hmm. that D three, and if you're uh, you, if you're not producing enough bile, you won't break down that D three either. So, is sometimes yeah. you need to get a bit more specific. I agree, and I, very often I find that people are actually taking their D three, as you said, in a meal. This is very common in a meal where there's no fat. They might well be taking the first thing in the morning, and they're not really there's not really any fat going in. And I always say there's no point in taking D3 if you haven't got fat going in with it. But I like the bile salts. I think that's really, you know, um, I think that's really helpful to, you know, stimulate the bile to make sure that it gets it gets absorbed well. And also K2, some, some people have yeah. a genetic deficiency that stops them absorbing the vitamin D if they don't get some K2 alongside it. So, Wendy, before we close, the last question I have, what's your favourite organ? I know that sounds really random, but this sort of infinite fascination with the body, is there an organ that you particularly like? Oh, that's so interesting. I've never thought about it. Um, where would we be without any of them? But I suppose the liver's probably one of the most fascinating organs in the body um, because it, on the one hand, detoxes everything and uh, and on the other hand, produces so many things. At yeah. the same time, it's sort of got two, two branches running, if you like. And it's probably the organ that we look that many people look after least well in our society, particularly in London. Mm, that's true. That's true. Well, Dr. Wendy Denning, you have been wonderful. So your website is www. 
thehealthdoctors.co.uk. Thank you so much for coming on to the show. You have been fabulous. Thank you for inviting me. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. And for everybody listening, thank you for joining the Urban Health Podcast, keeping busy people healthy.